There is much confusion in the world and in the church today about homosexuality. I do not need to tell you that there is an agenda to persuade society that homosexuality and lesbianism are normal. An agenda to persuade society that we should celebrate homosexuals and lesbians. That homosexuals and lesbians have been oppressed and now need to be given a voice and protected, especially from white straight men. An agenda to persuade society that voicing disapproval of homosexuality and lesbianism is hate speech. I don't need to tell you that this agenda is being aggressively pushed in public schools, in universities, in public libraries, in professional sports, the media, politics, corporations, etc. Now what you may not be aware of is the varied things that churches, including evangelical ones, are saying about homosexuality and lesbianism. When our family goes on vacation and drives through different parts of the country, we see numerous churches flying rainbow flags. For decades, liberal quote-unquote churches in America have approved of homosexuality and ordained homosexuals and lesbians as ministers, and for many years have blessed same-sex unions and same-sex marriages. The evangelical churches, for the most part, do not approve of homosexual relations or homosexual marriage. There are a growing number of evangelical churches that are leaning in that direction. Or that say it is okay to be a gay Christian as long as you are celibate. Churches that say that same-sex attraction is okay. Andy Stanley's church, North Point Community Church in Atlanta, hosted a conference earlier this year called Unconditional. The website for the conference says, this two-day premiere event is for parents of LGBTQ plus children and for ministry leaders looking to discover ways to support parents and LGBTQ plus children in their churches. Andy Stanley spoke at the conference along with two speakers who are in what the world calls same-sex marriages. The conference was organized by a couple in the church uh, who lead an organization called Embracing the Journey. On their website, they say that they have a gay son and have, quote, immersed themselves in the LGBTQ plus community. And their website says their ministry's purpose is, quote, to build bridges between LGBTQ plus individuals, their families, and the church, not in spite of the Bible, but because of the Bible, drawing parents and children into a deeper relationship with each other and vertically with God. World News reports that their ministry has established chapters at evangelical churches across the country, including Saddleback Church, the church that was started by Rick Warren. For several years, there was a controversy in the PCA. The PCA is the Presbyterian Church of America. It is an evangelical Presbyterian denomination. There are some very good uh, pastors, some very good churches in the PCA. For several years, there was a controversy in the PCA over whether to admit to the pastorate men who self-identify as gay and are celibate. One of their pastors at the time, Greg Johnson, from Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, uh, self-identifies as a celibate gay Christian. In 2021, he published a book titled, Still Time to Care, What We Can Learn from the Church's Failed Attempt to Cure Homosexuality. And the description on the back of that book says... Still Time to Care is a stirring call to the church 
uh, I'm sorry, still time to care is a stirring call to the church uh, to embrace their celibate, non-straight fellow believers. Greg Johnson is a strong supporter of Revoice, a Christian gay supporting movement and conference. Revoice's mission statement on their website says, quote, The mission is to support and encourage gay, lesbian, bisexual, and other same-sex attracted Christians, as well as those who love them, so that all in the church might be empowered to live in gospel unity while observing the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality. At the end of last year, Greg Johnson and his church decided to withdraw from the PCA. What are we to think about these things? In our study of 1 Corinthians, we come to a verse that includes homosexuality in a list of sins. Because of what some churches are saying about homosexuality, I am compelled to devote this entire message to looking at what the scriptures teach. I pray that it will be used of the Lord to give you a biblical understanding of the sin of homosexuality and to equip you to explain the biblical view to others, to equip you to evangelize unbelievers who are homosexuals, and to equip you to help believers who have homosexual desires. I'm going to read to us 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through 11. Uh, Please stand in honor of the Word of God. <clears throat> Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Next Sunday, we will be studying this whole passage. Uh, But today, uh, we are going to focus on the term here, uh, men who uh, practice homosexuality. And we're going to look at what the Bible as a whole says about this. And notice the, the term that is used in verse 9 as the ESV translates it. Uh, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Uh, this term, men who practice homosexuality, translates two separate terms in the original language. Uh, the, original, the New Testament was originally written in, in Greek. And so there's two terms that are together translated here, men who practice homosexuality. Now the ESV has a footnote uh, to help you to understand the terms from which this has been translated. If you have the ESV, you'll note that footnote after the word homosexuality. If you look uh, at what the footnote says, it says, the two Greek terms translated by this phrase refer to the passive and active partners in consensual homosexual acts. Now some scholars claim that the terms found here in 1 Corinthians 6-9 should be understood more narrowly, referring only to a specific kind of homosexual behavior, and that they do not refer to committed, consensual, same-sex relationships as we know them today. 
but their arguments for this are not sound. I looked at eight well-respected English translations uh, of this verse, and all eight uh, translate the terms uh, in various ways, but every translation I looked at made it clear that all male homosexual intercourse is included. The lesbianism was not nearly as common as male homosexuality in the day in which Paul wrote. The implication is that the same is true of lesbian relations. Note what this passage says about those who practice homosexuality and other sins that are listed here. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And he lists these various categories of sin and says these will not uh, inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, homosexuality, as with other sins, uh, condemns one unto eternal judgment. And that in order to be saved, one must repent of their homosexuality or whatever other sins they are guilty of. And that when one does repent and put their faith in Christ, they become a new creation in Christ. And so their sin becomes a part of their old self. And they are new in Christ, washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this passage says. Now, for the rest of this message, um, I, I will use the term homosexuality to refer to both lesbianism and to male homosexuality. I do want to give credit where credit is due. I have been greatly helped uh, in my recent study of this subject by two books, one written by Kevin DeYoung, titled, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? And the second, authored by Rosaria Butterfield, titled Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, which was just published this year. If you're not familiar with Rosaria Butterfield, it's good for you to know that she was saved after living as a lesbian for 10 years. And she gives some of her testimony in this book as well as her previous book. I preached a sermon in 2013 that I titled Homosexuality that is available on Sermon Audio's website, uh, if you would like to listen to a second sermon uh, on this subject, I would recommend listening to that sermon found on Sermon Audio. Well, today I want to make three points from Scripture in order that you would have a biblical view of homosexuality. Understand that there are churches that teach contrary to each of these three points. And so these points not only state the biblical view, they also stand against false ideas that are being taught by many churches. We're going to see, first of all, that the Bible speaks against the sin of homosexuality. Second, both homosexual activity and desire are sinful and need to be repented of. And thirdly, homosexuality is not part of any Christian's true identity. First of all, the Bible speaks against the sin of homosexuality. We've already seen this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now I want to show you additional passages. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 19. 
Genesis chapter 19. God has given great promises uh, to Abraham. Promises of blessing. Promises which include spiritual salvation. Promise that through Abraham's offspring, the Lord will bless all the families of the earth. And ultimately that would be through his offspring, Jesus Christ. He's been given great promises. Abraham has believed God. And God has counted his faith to him as righteousness. In Genesis chapter 19, uh, we have God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, which is where Abram's nephew Lot was living. I'm going to go back to chapter 18, verse 20. Chapter 18, verse 20. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And so God sends two angels. The angels have the appearance of men to Sodom. Let's look in chapter 19 at verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Now, these angels were mentioned back in chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 2 tells us that they had the appearance of men. They don't look like angels. They look like men. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered the house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them to us that we may know them. Notice that they call them men. They, they have the appearance of men. They, under, they, they believe they're men. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Know them is a euphemism in the Bible for sexual relations. Verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands, and brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great. So they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So 
The men of Sodom see these two angels that have the appearance of men. They, they believe they're men. Um, and they want to have homosexual relations with them. And they're, they're quite forceful about it. Now go down to verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Now, for, for what sin or sins did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Before the angels even went there, uh, the Lord knew of their grievous wickedness. Uh, we did see um, when the angels were there uh, that the men wanted to have homosexual relations uh, with what they believed were two men. Turn over to Jude 5. The second to last book of the Bible, Jude 5, which refers back to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and tells us, identifies some of the sin for which God destroyed those cities. And we saw it was not just Sodom and Gomorrah, but it also was the cities around them. Jude 5 Jude, Jude verse 5, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Notice that the sin for which they were judged was a, a sin that was present in Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. And notice what sin is identified. It says uh, they indulged in sexual immorality. That's a very broad term uh, for any sexual intercourse uh, that is unholy that is contrary to God's law. And then it gets more specific. It says they pursued unnatural desire, referring to homosexuality. They pursued desire that was contrary to God's clear design of male and female bodies. They pursued unnatural desire. God destroyed these cities because of their sin, including the sin of homosexuality, which apparently was widespread in these cities. Let's look at a second passage. Turn over to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus, another passage in which God speaks against homosexuality as a sin. The book of Leviticus, chapter 18. Now the main idea in this section of Leviticus is given to us in chapter 19, verse 2. In chapter 19, verse 2, the Lord says to Moses, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. 
So the Lord gives laws for, to Israel uh, that require them to live in a holy way before Him. Uh, in that context of laws that require people to live in a holy way before God, we have the verse that we want to look at. Look at chapter 18, verse 22. Um, this is in a context of uh, various uh, prohibitions of, I'm sorry, um, laws that, that forbid various sexual relations. Look at verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Saying that a man shall not lie with another male. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. Here, to, to lie with is another euphemism in the Bible for sexual relations. Now this implies that a woman shall not lie with another female as well, though that is not explicitly stated here. Notice that homosexuality is called an abomination here. You should not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. The word abomination means loathsome to God. Something that is an abomination is something that God hates. Why is homosexuality an abomination? It's an abomination because it perverts something good that God designed exclusively for marriage between one man and one woman. Sex is good as God designed it in the one context for which He created it. A marriage relationship between a man and a woman. And homosexuality, as other sexual immorality, perverts what God has made as good. Now, was homosexual behavior only prohibited for Israel? These laws were given to Israel. Is the prohibition against homosexual behavior only for Israel? No. This prohibition that we just read reflects God's moral law for all people at all times. Remember how Paul spoke in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 of incest being sin. On what basis did Paul say that incest is sin? Incest was prohibited earlier here in Leviticus 18. This is the basis on which Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says that incest is sinful. We have detailed prohibitions earlier in this chapter against incest, which would be the foundation for what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5.1. Now, is only a certain kind of homosexual relations prohibited here in Leviticus? No. Incest is very carefully defined in verses 6 through 17. If, if God was only prohibiting a certain kind of homosexual relations here, he would have made that very clear. Go forward to chapter 20, verse 13. Chapter 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So very similar in wording uh, to what we just read in chapter 18. However, there are a few things here that we didn't see in the previous one. If a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. 
observed that both individuals under the Mosaic law were to be executed. Not one, but both. Which makes it clear that what is in mind here is consensual. If God was only prohibiting homosexual rape, He would not require both parties to be put to death. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 5-6 through 6, states that in the case of rape, only the aggressor is to be punished. The victim is to be protected. The Old Testament law clearly reveals that consensual homosexual relations is a sin against God. Turn over to another passage, 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9 and 10. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So Paul is speaking of the law of God. And he communicates very clearly here that homosexual relations, as with all the other sins listed, is a transgression of God's law. And then one more passage, Romans chapter 1. The book of Romans chapter 1. What we have here in Romans 1 is the most extensive teaching in the Bible on homosexuality. Homosexuality is addressed here in this chapter beginning in verse 26, but we must go back to verse 18 to understand why Paul brings this up and what his point is. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We see here that our fundamental problem as sinners is that we have suppressed the truth of God. And that when we live unrighteous, unrighteously, we suppress the truth of God. Verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them. That is, what can be known about God is plain to every single human being. It says, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So God has given us enough knowledge through creation to know of His existence, and something of His nature, of His character, and that we as His creatures are to worship Him. We are to give thanks to Him. So He's revealed these things about Himself to all human beings through what He has made. He says in verse 20, So they are without excuse. That is, without excuse for living contrary to the truth of God. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Paul's talking about the fall into sin and how after the fall, God gave mankind up to further and further sin. And we see here in verse 21 that our thinking was corrupted in the fall. Our, our hearts were corrupted in the fall. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is talking about those who did not receive uh, God's grace and worship the true God. It says, they foolishly exchanged the worship of the immortal God for the worship of images of created things. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. It says, therefore God gave them up. It, it speaks of this as, as God's judgment. Therefore God gave them up in judgment. He gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. In other words, we began to use our bodies in ways that are impure in God's sight, ways that dishonor our bodies. Again, he says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the, than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul is speaking of the condition of all of us before being saved. We worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Do you recognize how foolish this is? You should recognize how foolish it is. God, the Creator, has revealed Himself through the creation. He's put within us the knowledge of Him. But instead of worshipping the Creator, we've worshipped created things. We are to see this as utterly foolish. Verse 26, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Again, it's speaking of God's judgment. God gave them up. What we see here is just as mankind had exchanged the truth about God for a lie, exchanging the worship of the Creator for the worship of the creature, so women exchanged natural relations with men for those that are contrary to nature. Paul's speaking about lesbianism. And men exchanged natural relations with women for those that are contrary to nature. Speaking about male homosexuality. What we see here is that homosexuality on the horizontal plane illustrates what all of us have done on the vertical plane. We have done something unnatural and foolish in worshiping created things rather than the Creator. And we have an illustration of this in homosexuality. Which clearly is unnatural. And foolish. We will look further at these verses, but first I want you to see where Paul goes with this. Look at verse 28. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This indicts all of us. Now my sins may look different from your sins, but all of us are in these verses that I just read to us. And Paul says in verse 32, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. From passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul turns away from the pagan world, the Gentile world, to those who have the Scriptures and who claim to worship the true God, And Paul says, you who judge those that I've just described, you do the very same things. Now, Paul is not saying that every person commits every sin mentioned in chapter 1, but he is saying that we all have the same fundamental heart problem that is spoken of in chapter 1, and we all are found in the list of sins that Paul gave in chapter 1. Sin in all its forms is unnatural and foolish. Whether it's yelling in anger at your family member, expressing a murderous attitude towards them, and that sinful anger you're you're spouting through your, your mouth at them, or it's looking at pornography, or if it's coveting, whatever our sins are, sin in all of its forms is unnatural and foolish, and comes from a heart that has suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. It comes from a heart that has exchanged the worship of the Creator for the worship of the creature. Why does Paul focus on homosexuality in verses 26 and 27? Because homosexuality is a clear physical illustration of what all of us have done spiritually. It it illustrates the idolatrous human impulse to turn away from God's order and design. Let us go back to see more of what verses 26 and 27 say about homosexuality. Look back at verse 26b. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Paul teaches that homosexuality is contrary to nature. Paul is not talking here about behavior that is contrary to prevailing customs, contrary to social norms, 
or contrary to your sexual orientation, or contrary to the state of your desires. Rather, he is talking about behavior that is contrary to God's clear design in creation seen in our anatomy. Homosexual relations is contrary to the way that God has clearly designed male and female anatomy. And thus is rebellion against the Creator. Rebellion against the Designer. Verse 27 says that men were, quote, consumed with passion for one another. Paul is speaking of homosexual relations that are mutual and consensual. They were consumed with passion for one another. This is consensual. This is mutual. Now the sinfulness of what Paul is describing is not the intensity of the passion. It's not the intensity of the passion that makes it sinful. The sinfulness is that it involves the exchange of God's good design that sex would be between a man and a woman for something contrary to that design. Now verses 26 and 27 speak of the sinfulness of both homosexual acts, which are called in verse 27 shameless acts, and it speaks of the sinfulness of homosexual passions, which are called in verse 26 dishonorable passions. Homosexuality is a sin, not according to who practices it, not according to the motivation behind it, not according to the level of commitment between the individuals, but because the act itself is contrary to God's good design. Men and women who engage in homosexuality, even if they are being true to their own feelings and desires, suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. And Paul speaks of this as, as an example of how all of us have rebelliously suppressed the truth of God and turned from Him. We'd be misunderstanding this text if we walk away from it and go, oh, how sinful homosexuality is. And we think nothing about the sinfulness of what we have done. It's given here as an illustration to show the foolishness and how unnatural all of our sin is in exchanging the truth of God for a lie, exchanging the worship of the Creator for worship of created things. And in our fallen condition, what is the number one created thing that we worship? Ourself. In America, we worship ourself. We dare not treat as no big deal behavior that the Bible puts forward here as a clear example of our rebellion against Him, rebellion that brings God's wrath and condemnation. We have seen in Scripture that homosexuality is sin. Now the question arises, is it just homosexual activity that is sinful and must be repented of? Or is homosexual desire also sinful and must be repented of? And what we see in the scriptures is that both homosexual activity and desire are sinful and need to be repented of. Now when I say here homosexual desire, I am not talking about homosexual lust. The Bible says all lust is sin. I don't need to prove to you that homosexual lust is sin. All lust is sin. What I am talking here about, when I'm talking about homosexual desire, is basically same-sex attraction. I'm talking about what a person has in mind when they say that they are a chaste, gay Christian. 
If they are committed to not engaging in homosexual acts, and they are being faithful to that commitment, from their perspective, what makes them gay? They're chaste. So what makes them gay in their mind? They might say they have a homosexual orientation. Now the concept of homosexual orientation is unbiblical. And I will try to explain that in my third point. Biblically, homosexuality has to do with desires and behavior. Is it okay for a single man to desire to get married and to have sex in marriage? Yes, it is okay to have that desire. That is a pure desire. Is it okay for a single man to desire to have a romantic relationship with another man and to have sex in such a relationship? No, that is a sinful desire. A desire for something that is sinful in God's eyes. People who call themselves gay Christians recognize that they have homosexual desires that cannot be fulfilled in a righteous way. And so they choose to live chaste lives. The question is, are those desires sinful and must they be repented of? And the Bible's answer is yes. They are sinful, they must be repented of. Now, even if you do not have homosexual desires, this answer may make you feel very uncomfortable. If you regularly have sinful desires that you are not willing to put to death, we need to understand what the Bible teaches about sinful desires. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus taught that God's law does not only prohibit murder, but also the murderous desire in the heart that, if unchecked, leads to the actual act. Similarly, in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus taught that God's law does not only prohibit adultery, but also the adulterous desire in the heart that, if unchecked, leads to the actual act. Before being saved, our sinful desires were at work within us. I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 7 as we're seeking to get a biblical understanding of sinful desires. <clears throat> desires for things that are sinful. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, that is how we lived before we were saved. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So in verse 5, when he's speaking about how we as Christians lived before we were saved, he speaks of our sinful passions. He says our, our sinful passions were at work in our members. That was in, in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Passions and desires for sin are called sinful passions and desires. And the, the good news of the Bible is that in regeneration, sanctification, and glorification, God transforms our desires. Sinful desires are replaced with holy desires. 
as God does His work of salvation in us. In regeneration, removing our old hearts, the heart of stone, replacing that with a heart of flesh, as He begins by His Spirit to sanctify us, to transform us, and then when He completes this work of salvation in glorification, when we are perfectly conformed to Christ. In all of this, God is replacing our sinful desires uh, with desires that are holy and righteous. Now, because God's saving work in our life transforms us down at the level of our desires, we as believers are instructed to put sinful desires to death. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to begin to read at verse 1 so you have the context of what I want you to see. Colossians 3 beginning at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Notice that as Christians, we are to put to death not only sins that are outward, but we're also to put to death evil desire. We're to crucify evil desire. Put it to death. Talks about putting it off that we might not pick it up again. Now we see the same thing in Ephesians. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, I want us to read verses 1 through 3 to see our former corrupt condition in which our sinful desires were very pronounced. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That describes all of us before we were saved. We lived in the passions of our flesh. These were sinful passions, sinful desires. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind. Speaking of sinful desires, we were carrying them out. We were by nature children of Wrath. We were sinners by nature. Now, this is all to change in salvation. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, that was read earlier in the service. We're no longer to live in the way that we once lived. When we lived in sinful passions and sinful desires. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, 
alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Notice there in verse 22 that... The gospel instructs us as believers to put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. We're to put off that whole old self, including its deceitful desires, its sinful desires. And we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness which is not a mere outward righteousness and holiness, but is an inward holiness and righteousness that leads to an outward holiness and righteousness. So these two passages raise the question, how do you put evil desire to death? How do you put off evil desire? Well, we certainly had no ability to do so before we were saved. We were spiritually dead. Now, as believers, we have a new heart. We have the Holy Spirit living within us, and we're, we're instructed to put evil desire to death, instructed to put off our old deceitful desire and to replace it with righteous desire. How do we do this? Understand that it, it starts with repentance. And repentance is a very important word in the New Testament. Repentance, which is, is, is part of our initial response to the gospel. The gospel calls us to repent of our sins and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ that we would be saved. And, and then after we are converted, repentance is part of the Christian life. Uh, we are to re repent when we are convicted of sin. And so repentance becomes a way of life for the, the, the Christian because we're in the process of being sanctified, in the process of being conformed to the image of, of Christ. We don't arrive on this side of glorification. It starts with repentance. Now, repentance is not essentially asking for forgiveness. If that in your mind is the totality of repentance, I ask God to forgive me my sins, then you do not understand repentance. As believers, we should ask our Heavenly Father for forgiveness when we repent, but that's not the substance of repentance. The Puritan Thomas Watson has written an excellent book explaining the Bible's teaching on repentance. It is currently being published with the title, The Doctrine of Repentance. And Watson helpfully gives a list of six ingredients that distinguish true repentance from counterfeit repentance. And then he gives scripture passages to show these things. Listen to this list of six ingredients that distinguish true repentance from counterfeit repentance. You know, there is a counterfeit repentance. The Bible calls it worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow leads to death. There's no true change of heart 
in worldly sorrow. But here's these six ingredients that, that Watson lists for us that distinguish true repentance from counterfeit repentance. First of all, true repentance includes recognition of sin. Secondly, it includes sorrow for sin. And that would be a God-centered sorrow for sin. Not, not sorrow that I got caught, not sorrow that there are consequences, but sorrow that I have offended our God who is worthy of the highest praise. The third ingredient is confession of sin. Psalm 51 is an excellent example of confession of sin to God. The fourth ingredient is shame for sin. The fifth ingredient, hatred for sin. The sixth ingredient, turning from sin. I'm going to zero in on that fifth one. Hatred for sin. If your repentance does not include having hatred in your heart for your sin, it falls short of true repentance. Psalm 119, 104 says, Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Our holy God hates sin. It's part of what it means that He is holy. He's absolutely pure, and He hates all that is impure. He hates sin, just as He has a corresponding love and delight in all that is righteous. Our holy God hates sin, and in repentance we come to see our sin the way that God sees it. Literally, in the New Testament, the word for repentance means a change of mind. We have a change of mind so that now we see our sin the way that God sees our sin. You know, we don't like to look at it the way God sees it. You know, when you're tempted to sin, you, you throw out the, the, tr the truth of God. You, you, you throw out the truth of how God sees it. In repentance, there is looking at your sin the way that God looks at it. And because He hates sin, in repentance, you will have a hatred for your sin. Hating your sin as God hates it, because it is offensive to Him. As Rosaria Butterfield put it, quote, Repentance must go to the root to the reckless, godless love of sin. Thomas Watson rightly said, quote, Loving of sin is worse than committing it. A good man may run into a sinful action unawares, but to love sin is desperate. To love sin shows that the will is in sin, and the more of the will there is in a sin, the greater the sin. People ask, how can same-sex attraction be sinful when it feels so normal? When it feels so natural? The answer is that prior to salvation, we are sinners by nature. That we have a sin nature. That sin has corrupted us not just outwardly, but inwardly. That our hearts and our minds have been corrupted, as we saw in Romans chapter 1. So we would expect that before we are saved, sin will feel natural to us. Because we have a sinful nature. Now, different sins will feel normal and natural to different people. 
Now, the Christian must look at his desires, his affections, his feelings through the lens of God's holy word. Comparing them to God's holy nature and his holy law. And when we do that, we can see our desires for what they really are. This is key. Looking at our desires, looking at our feelings, looking at our attractions through the lens of God's word. That we would see them as he sees them. Rather than exchanging the truth of God for a lie, as we look at our own desires through the lens of God's word, we can now exchange the lie for the truth of God. Choosing to believe God's word over our feelings. And that's a big part of sanctification. Is believing God's word over our feelings. Our feelings can go all over the map. Any sin can feel good to us at the moment. Any sin can look good to us at the moment. Any sinful desire that we have can seem to us very good in the moment. The key in sanctification, amongst others, is looking at what's going on inside of us through the lens of God's Word. Seeing our desires as God sees them. And choosing to believe God's Word rather than believing my feelings. Trusting God's Word rather than trusting my feelings. Romans 12.2 calls this, exchange, this exchanging of the lie for the truth, the renewal of our mind. And teaches that this is the way of being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Being transformed by the renewal of your mind amounts to a reversal of Romans 1. Romans 1 was, man has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. He gave up the truth of God and chose to believe the lie instead. In the renewal of your mind, it's the reversal of that. The lie is removed as you learn and hold on to and cling to the word of God. So the renewal of the mind is a reversal of Romans 1, but it's more than a reversal. The renewal of the mind does not amount to merely becoming like Adam in his innocent pre-fall condition, but it amounts to becoming like Christ in his holiness and righteousness. This transformation by the renewal of our mind continues what God starts with regeneration. The transformation of our being from the inside out starts with regeneration. It continues in progressive sanctification, which involves daily, even moment by moment, renewing of the mind, repenting, putting sin to death, putting on the virtues of Christ. And this transformation will be completed in glorification. The transformation on this side of glory is imperfect. There's a growing likeness to Christ on this side of glory. But it's not a perfect likeness. The work will be completed in a glorious way in glorification. The quote-unquote gay Christianity movement wrongly teaches that homosexuality is a normal variance. That homosexuality is part of who the gay Christian is. 
that homosexual orientation is morally neutral, separate from one's sin nature, that it cannot be repented of, and that it rarely changes over a person's lifetime. Such teaching of gay Christianity leaves a Christian trying to control something within that the Bible calls sin, rather than repenting of it and seeking to mortify it and experiencing true transformation from the inside out. Now, does the Bible's teaching mean that a former homosexual must now desire to get married? No. While marriage is a good thing, 1 Corinthians 7 makes clear that Christians are free to remain single. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 makes clear that getting married is not more pleasing to God than remaining single. Now, some former homosexuals desire to marry. Others do not. Neither is more honoring to God than the other. Now, for the transformation that we have been talking about to occur, the believer must recognize what the Bible teaches, that homosexuality is not part of their true identity. Homosexuality is not part of any Christian's true identity. The idea of a homosexual orientation is that a person's homosexuality defines who they are. In contrast, the Bible teaches that it is being created by God as a man or woman in His image with a soul that will last forever that defines who a human being is. And then when in salvation a person is recreated in Christ, they are redefined by this divine act of salvation. So they now have an old self and a new self. While homosexuality may be part of the Christian's old self, it is not part of who they are now in Christ. Come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look again at verses 9 and following, thinking about identity. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were this and you are no longer this. So the term that is being used by some Christians, gay Christian, is not true to Scripture. Paul says... You once were this, but no longer, because you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Colossians 3, 9b-10 through 10 say, You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. The Lord used this passage in Colossians powerfully in Rosaria Butterfield's life soon after she was saved out of a life of lesbianism. 
Butterfield writes, quote, This passage told me that I am a Christian and that lesbianism is part of my biography, not my new nature, regardless of how I feel inside. Part of my biography, not part of my new nature, regardless of how I feel inside. Praise the Lord that the Christian is not defined by his or her past sinful desires and sinful behaviors, nor by his or her present sinful desires and sinful behaviors with which he or she struggles. But the Christian has been set free from sin by the blood of Christ and is now defined as a new creation in Christ, born of the Spirit, washed in the blood of the Lamb, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, destined to be holy and blameless in God's sight. That's our identity. Consequently, when the Christian desires sin or behaves in a sinful way, he or she is no longer acting in accordance with his nature before being saved. When when we had sinful desires, when we act in a sinful way, we were acting in accordance with our nature. But now that we are saved, when we do desire sin or we do behave in a sinful way, We're now acting against our new nature. We're acting contrary to who we truly are in Christ. The recognition of that can be used of the Spirit to keep you from heading down that path. I'm tempted towards this. And that's how I once lived. But that's how how my old self lived. I'm not that person anymore. I'm new in Christ I'm washed, I'm sanctified, I'm justified. And, and if, if I were to, to yield toward the sin or I, were to keep, or I were to keep going down that path in my mind, I would be acting contrary to who I am. I'd be acting contrary to my new nature. I'd be acting contrary to who I am in Christ. So may I not do so? Well, let me ask some practical questions for us as believers. How can you help a person who is in homosexuality? How can you help a person who is in homosexuality? If they are an unbeliever, understand that the greatest way that you can help them is the same as for any unbeliever. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Help them to understand the gospel. As a Christian, you cannot approve of their homosexuality. In Romans 1, when Paul indicted the Gentile world, in verse 32 he said, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval of those who practice them. It is wrong in God's sight to give approval of those who practice sin. As Christians, we cannot express or show approval of homosexuality. Isaiah 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. To show approval of homosexuality would be to be unfaithful to God. Now as you seek to evangelize this unbeliever uh, who is in homosexuality, you will have to communicate that homosexuality is sin. To understand the gospel, we have to understand the law of God. But don't let homosexuality become the focal point of your conversations. The focal point must be the gospel. The focal point must be 
Christ. And then how can you help a Christian who struggles with homosexuality? How can you help a Christian who struggles with homosexuality? Be a godly friend to them. Christian men who struggle with homosexuality need to learn to have godly friendships with other Christian men. Christian women who struggle with homosexuality need to learn to have godly friendships with other Christian women. Don't shy away from them because of their struggle. Learn about their struggles. Encourage them to apply themselves to what are uh, often called the means of grace. You know, the, the daily personal reading of the Word of God. To daily apply the Word of God to the life. Daily practice of, of prayer. Fellowshipping with the church. Sitting underneath the preaching of the Word of God. We need to exercise the means of grace that we would grow in Christ. So you have this Christian friend, they're struggling with homosexuality. Encourage them to apply themselves to the means of grace. Help them avoid the pitfall of making same-sex attraction the number one thing in their life that needs to change. There are many things in each of our lives that need to change as we grow in Christ. And as we grow in one area, we grow in others. For all the parts of our life are connected to the same heart. And the transformation of our life begins in the heart. Everything in our conduct flows from the heart. So as the heart is transformed, it will affect every area of our lives. So help them avoid the pitfall of making same-sex attraction the number one thing in their life that needs to change. And pray with them and for them regarding growing in Christ. You can't change your Christian friend. Only Christ can transform us. And so in prayer, we go together to the one who can change our hearts. Trans sanctification is God's work in us. We have responsibilities in sanctification. We cooperate with God in sanctification. But ultimately, it's God's work. And so we go to the Lord. Together with our friend and for our friend, we go to the Lord in prayer regularly regarding growing in Christ. Let me ask you, where do you stand today? As we have looked in various passages at God's law, as we have considered the nature of repentance, as we have looked in some passages at the changes that Christ brings about in a person, it is possible that you have come to see that you are not a Christian. It's possible that you have come to see that you need salvation. The good news of the Bible is what God has done to save sinners. The Bible says we are all on the same plane because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are transgressors of God's holy law. All of us have suppressed the truth of God and gone our own way instead of worshiping God and honoring Him and giving thanks to Him. We have not obeyed God. We have disobeyed God. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Jesus warned of the eternal death. It is a place of, of fire. It is a place of eternal judgment. 
eternal conscious punishment. God is holy and He must punish sin. He is just. There must be a recompense for sin. And there's nothing that we can do to escape the penalty that we deserve for our sin. You you can't somehow do good things that are going to outweigh your sin. You can't do that. Because God's holy. He requires perfection. Perfect obedience to His law. And we are sinners by nature. We We have no ability to change ourselves. But what we cannot do for ourselves, God has done for us. God has sent His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is very God of very God, the second person of of the triune God. God the Father sent His Son. Jesus Christ became flesh. He became one of us. He he humbled Himself in taking on human form, in taking the form of of a servant, in order to redeem sinners. And He was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. He obeyed the Father perfectly. He only did the Father's will. He obeyed the law of God in every jot and tittle. Then He laid down His life in atoning sacrifice upon the cross. He laid down His life as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He laid down His life to pay the penalty for our sins. He took our place. He he died as our substitute. As He bore our sin upon the cross. He bore our guilt. He was chastised by the Father. He suffered the wrath of the Father for our sin. He satisfied the Father's wrath there upon the cross. He died. His body was buried. And on the third day, He was raised. And His disciples saw the risen Christ. He appeared to His disciples over the course of 40 days to over 500 of His disciples of all these witnesses to the resurrection of of Christ. And Jesus Christ has sent forth the gospel, the good news. He is sending forth the message of the gospel to the, the ends of the earth. The gospel of God calls upon every man, woman, boy, and girl to repent of your sin. We talked about repentance. Not just asking God to forgive you, but a true change of heart over your sin, a true sorrowing over your sin because of the offense that it is good to God, a a true forsaking of your sin in your heart. It's not, well, I sinned, forgive me, but I'm going to continue to treasure that sin in my heart. No, there's no treasuring of sin. Hate your sin, forsake your sin, that you might put your sin to death. The Bible calls for you to repent of your sin, to turn from your sin to Jesus Christ. To believe that He is the Son of God, that He is God Himself who came in human flesh. To trust in Him as your Savior from sin. And to trust Him as your Lord, submitting your life to follow Him as your Lord the rest of your days. The Bible promises salvation, forgiveness of sin, a, a, a declaration of a right standing with God. Adoption into God's family. The gift of the Spirit. And eternity with the Lord in heaven promises all the blessings of salvation. Not to the one who works, but to the one who believes in the Son. So if you do not know Jesus Christ today, know that you are a slave to sin. Know that you are under God's condemnation. 
And you need Jesus. You need Jesus to save you. I urge you, come to Jesus today. Letting go of your sin. Forsaking your sin and taking hold of Christ in faith. Take hold of Christ as your Savior. Take hold of Christ as your Lord in faith. That you might follow Him and obey Him and live for Him as the Spirit of God begins a work of transforming you from the inside out into the image of Christ, unto the glory of God. And so, as believers, we have this glorious gospel by which we are saved, this glorious gospel by which we declare to the world, and it reminds us, as believers, all of our sins, past, present, and future, were nailed to the cross. Not just sinful actions, sinful desires as well. All of it was nailed to the cross. We've been pardoned of all of our sin, past, present, and future. And we have the Holy Spirit who is at work within us. He's at work to make us like Jesus. And one day that work will be perfectly complete. 1 John 3 says that when Jesus comes, we will see Him. And we'll be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. And so we don't depend upon what we do. We don't trust in our labors, but we rest in the finished work of Christ. And we rejoice in God's ongoing work of salvation in our lives. And we, with biblical hope, confident, eager expectation, long for that day when Jesus will come again and we'll be like Him never to have a sinful desire again. Never to behave in a sinful way, but truly holy and righteous to the depths of our being and from the depths of our being outward to the glory of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of Christ. Lord, we live in a day where we're hearing many different things. Many, many different voices in our lives. But Lord, thank you that amidst the voices we have your word by which we are to judge every other voice. We have your word which is truth as you are truth and your word is truth. Oh Lord, help us to apply what we've seen today to each of our lives and equip us, Father, to hold out your word to others, speaking the truth in love that others would be saved and brothers and sisters would be sanctified for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.